Hello friends, welcome back to Force Ghost Coast to Coast. My name is Brian Salvatore and I will be your host on this episode, which is episode 5, The Fans Strike Back. We are a production of MultiversityComics.com, which is currently running its year in review series, so if you want to read about what the best stuff in the world of comics was in 2015, please go to MultiversityComics.com and check that out. So today we are going to talk about fan interaction with the series. And I don't mean things like fan fiction or even fan edits, but I mean the pieces of the property that let the fans make up their own stories, or at least play in that universe. So essentially we're talking about video games and toys. Uh, I am not the biggest gamer, which you're going to hear about in my chat with Vince later on tonight, but I have had a steady stream of Star Wars toys and video games in my life for a long time. But the one I want to talk about in particular, is one that is not all that old. Um, a couple of years ago, my wife decided she was going to get her master's, and I went back, uh, not went back, I took on a second job to help pay for that master's. And so uh, I was working six days a week, and I'd be working long days, and I would come home at night, and I would want to do something that would just take my mind off of whatever I was doing and just veg for a little while. And the thing that I found that was perfect at that was the Lego Star Wars series of games. Um, I don't even know if it was particularly the Star Wars-ness of them or the Lego-ness of them, but I just absolutely loved sort of turning my brain off for a little while and enjoying playing that game. So when I think of Star Wars video games, that's, uh, well, aside from what I'm going to talk about with Vince, that is my strongest memory. But Star Wars toys, I mean, shit, I'm a kid born in 1982. Star Wars to- toys have been a part of my life forever. They've always been a huge part of my fandom. Playing with toys that my cousins or my friends had, having my own, having that incredible uh, Darth Vader carrying case for my toys. Um, I don't know if my most prized toy was my Jabba the Hutt, or I particularly loved my Luke Skywalker figure where he was in the Imperial Stormtrooper outfit. You could take the helmet off and say that it was Luke. Um, I loved all that, all that stuff so much, and... Uh, Yeah, this episode is one that is definitely interesting to me because I think that, especially for people who are younger than I am, they interact with the video games so much more than I did. But it's the part of the fandom that I think maybe I least connect with. I don't know. It's interesting. This has been a fascinating episode to put together, and we're going to get to it without any further ado. We are going to hear first tonight from my pals, and hopefully your pals, Zach Wilkerson and Chris Thompson, as they talk about their experience with Star Wars toys. I'm Zach Wilkerson, and I'm joined by by Chris Thompson. Chris, say hey. Hey, how you doing? And we are going to spend some time talking about our history with Star Wars merchandise, particularly toys, Star Wars toys, which, as most know, are a huge part of many people's, um, I would say, formative Star Wars fandom. Mm-hmm. So, so Chris, what what is your history with Star Wars toys and Star Wars merchandising? 
Oh man, just just start with a, a small question. It goes all the way, <laughs> all the way back to the very beginning. I, I don't know how many people have had a chance to listen to the first episode of what is it, Force Ghost, Coast to Coast. Yes. But I talk about my memories of Star Wars there and how they're tied to my earliest memories. So essentially, I did get to see the original Star Wars. And that's its name, by the way. It's it's called Star Wars. It's, it's not called A New Hope. It's called Star Wars. And I saw that at the cinema. And of course, being a very little kid, I remember my dad taking me to the supermarket, you know, within a few days of having seen that. And I saw all these toys there. And I immediately had to have them. And I have a feeling that a lot of the good ones were probably sold out at the time. But the first two I definitely remember getting were the Hammerhead and I think his name was Ponder Barber, the kind of walrus guy. Yes, yes. So so those two from the Mose Eisley cantina scene were the first two that I definitely remember getting. And yeah, as I say, it's probably because all the cool ones were gone. And then my next one I had to have was one of the Sand People and I loved them. And yeah, I often mention sand people because they're very cool so that's my earliest memories and how it began for me but I, i'm curious for you zach because you are a little bit younger than me and uh, or, or you know probably quite a lot i, I should be generous you know I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm 26 so i was um i i think again in that first episode of star war the star wars podcast i talked about i first got into star wars around the time of the special edition so i would have been about eight or nine then so they're like actually special to you then mm -hmm. <laughs> they are they were my <laughs> star wars yeah um but yeah you know i my experience with star wars toys actually didn't dip into the action figures all that much i was way more interested in the star wars lego line Right. Um, that that came out around that time and th that was really interesting i i believe that was one of the first licensed star uh licensed lego lines mm -hmm. i don't know if it was the first but it was definitely one of the earliest and some of my uh like fondest memories of of childhood were putting those sets together i think some of my favorites were the um there was a set that had Anakin's pod racer and I think Sebulba's in it as well mm -hmm. and I I loved that set not not there's just something about it it wasn't the pod racers themselves that were that interesting I never thought that they were that interesting but something just about the way the set was put together I, I loved that um I'm trying to think the b-wing uh I that's one of my favorite ships and that one was very interesting and then Interestingly, one of my all-time favorites was uh, Zam Weasel's Speeder from Attack of the Clones. Okay. Because that one had some very interestingly colored uh, bricks and shapes. And yeah, I, I loved building Star Wars Legos. Mm, I, see, I thought you were going to be sort of talking more about the newer action figure line. I, I like this. We're learning about each other at the same time as everyone else, which is, is way more fun than if we already <laughs> know the answers. Yes. Yeah, because uh, I, I mean, with my history with the the Star Wars, it's it's always very much about the action figures. Although, man, I, I get into so much of the other merch. But one thing I do remember is 
as a kid, I got a whole lot of the action figures, but I never got any of the vehicles. So I, I always wished I'd had a a land speeder in particular, but of course the Millennium Falcon, and I never had any of these. But I had a whole bunch of the figures, and for some reason I would keep them, like I, I would actually play with these things. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, I've just had a memory. No, I had an X-Wing. There we go, it's come back to me. And I would play with these things in the bath. So I was not <laughs> about, you know, longevity and, you know, how do I look after these for the future? It was, man, these toys are to be played with. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd play with them all in the bath and, and what have you. But I would carry around my all my Star Wars figures in like a bin liner bag. And I remember we had this really annoying brat. I don't think he lived next door. I think his grandparents did. But he went to school with me and he was local. And he stole my bin bag of Star Wars action figures. And I lost majority of the original ones. I think the only one that I still had was Ponda Barber, as mentioned before. That's, so. that's, that's tragic. <laughs> yeah. And I, I knew it was him, but it's this weird thing when you're a kid and, you know, you don't want to you, – you can't figure out what to do about it yourself and you don't want to involve your parents and whatever. And uh, I, I was very young, so – Maybe he's yeah. listening to this. Yeah. And feeling his, his private shame. I, I'm sure his name was Nathan, and I want to say <laughs> it was Nathan Brown. So, Nathan Brown, if you are listening – I hope you feel like the dirtbag you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You, you didn't uh, have any of yours stolen or, or lost or tragically taken from you at all? No, I actually think most of my Star Wars toys from childhood are sitting safely in plastic bins in my, my parents' attic right now. Right. Um, and, and every time I go home for holidays, I, I think about... Um, fighting my way in there and trying to to open them up and look at them again but it's it's almost impenetrable at this point i make a little more progress every year one year i i will get far enough in there to to open the boxes and it'll be it'll be really exciting but maybe this year did you or do you still have all the pieces you weren't sort of missing you know, some key piece I, I don't know um i i think everything is there but um, I left most of them completed, but I'm sure they've, um, you know, pieces have fallen off and are in the bottom of bottom of boxes and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I don't know. I've actually in recent years, um, I one of my wife's uh, cousins who I'm very good friends with and is a, is a huge Lego fanatic has been feeding that... Uh, that addiction, I guess, a little bit. Uh -huh. He'll buy me a Lego every once in a while. And uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the newer ones for Force Awakens, but uh. there are some very nice ones. Kylo Ren's uh, spaceship is on the top of my list, but very expensive. That, <laughs> that's the thing with those. Some of them are prohibitively uh, expensive. This is true. I remember uh, one Christmas a few years ago, I bought myself the... Jabba's Palace uh, Lego set, which, you know, was a lot of fun. And then I think it was maybe for my birthday six months later, I had to buy the Rancor pit that actually connects to that because, you know, they're upset. Yes, definitely. Yeah, actually, last Christmas, my wife got me the Cantina set that came out. 
and uh-huh. it is very cool because it um it's on hinges and it unfolds so that you can see the whole thing as kind of a like diorama or you can fold it up into a sort of building mm-hmm. and it has all the different facets it's got the cantina band and uh han and chewie off in a corner and luke and and obi-wan with their speeder and even even a uh stormtrooper on a dewback so is, it's a is there nice a greedo maybe that's it it's han and greedo there's not a chewbacca figure in there uh-huh. it's, it's han and greedo yes there you go so you can sort of play at who shot first yes yes <laughs> yeah i i tell you aside from the the more recent lego and talking about the old action figures i had star wars toys were actually massive for me so when they sort of i think around the time of the special editions they started releasing new toys again mm-hmm. it's probably about 96 i, I want to say like thereabouts and i didn't get them straight away but when the phantom menace came out you know i'll own up to it like you know a lot of people won't but i enjoyed that movie at first mm-hmm. because i was just craving more star wars and so that had come out, and I started picking up some of the action figures from that film. I mean, there were some cool-looking characters. I think Sebulba was one of the most unique, kind of visually catching designs of, of the newer films. And so I ended up buying them, and I guess being a comic fan, I'm just this completist. I have I just <laughs> have this compulsion, so I had to have them all, and I managed to get a bunch on sale, and so I had all them, and then suddenly there were these ones that weren't coming to Australia, and I was buying them. And then I knew about the ones that had come out in the three or four years previous for the special editions, and I was buying those. And all the vehicles associated that I'd never had as a kid. And so I have, very similar to what you were saying, where back in Australia I have all these giant plastic tubs full of Star Wars toys and vehicles and you know the big deep ones I want to say there's about 15 of them (laughs) and when I moved to London eight almost eight and a half years ago I only expected to be coming for a year or a year and a half so I put them into a, a storage shed along with you know all our furniture and and possessions and things that we wanted to keep but let me tell you these toys and my comics take up half the shed <laughs> and uh they are still sitting there to this day and i'm just like what am i gonna do with this stuff i and half of them i never open they're still just in the packets i mean i love them but at the same time i'm going what what's with all this stuff that i've accumulated yeah now now were those the ones that came with the the com links and there would be yeah. chips that you could put? those were so cool Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is the, the other part of the story, I guess. I was saying that there's a lot of them that aren't opened, but I opened all the ones with the uh, com chips in them and used to love, you know, making them just, you know, do their little snippets of voice. That that was kind of cool back then, you know. Yes, it definitely was. Um, you know, I think it's interesting how how fandom has kind of grown over the years and how now um people of of our age and older who grew up with this stuff as kids um you know you become a little bit more financially independent and you're able to go back and kind of splurge on these sorts of things yeah and um they've definitely capitalized that on that um with things like the black series line of action figures have you seen any of those yeah 
Yeah, just those the the nicer versions of things you used to have where you go, well, that's even better. That's that's more grown up, so that fits in with where I'm at today. That's okay to buy. Yes, yeah, they come in the very nice um, stylized boxes mm-hmm. and very very well done. Very, um, I the I see the the Kylo Ren figure. With mm-hmm. that, with like the cloth and the all all of the details, and I just think, man, I I could justify getting that. That would go great <laughs> on my desk. Have you taken the dip with any of the new toys yet? Then at all? You know, I I really haven't yet. Uh, mostly mm-hmm. because I haven't been able to find too many of them. They've still they're just now in my area, um, becoming a little bit easier to find. Most of the time at least from the, the Black Series line, which is the one I, I would be most interested in. I, I see a lot of Chewbacca's. That seems to be the easiest one to find. And then I've seen a lot of Finn action figures, mm. which um, nothing against Finn. I think he's a very cool character. Really excited for him, but the figure itself isn't very interesting. Yeah. I think that's the thing. It's it's like the toys are interesting at the moment. Kylo Ren is obviously visually arresting from the beginning. So is BB-8. <laughs> But with a lot of them, it's going to be seeing the film that suddenly people are going to be like, yeah, I want to get that. Finn Mm -hmm. is cool, you know, Ray is awesome. But we have no context for them at the moment. And yeah, otherwise they they just look like people right now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I I haven't dipped in myself yet either. Like I'm trying not to because, as I've explained, I have so many back in (laughs) Australia. I mean, I do have two giant lego sets here plus the advent calendars for the last couple of years full of star wars because that's like a nice little treat to me and i go that doesn't take up much room you know once you ditch the box it's fine uh although you know of course i can't bring myself to throw the boxes away (laughs) it's like no it's a play set it's like (laughs) it it sets up the little scenario for them (laughs) but yeah i i'm hanging off and i don't know how that's going to change when I see the film. I, I kind of don't want to open that door because I did explain my level of compulsion. You know, I'm kind of all or nothing. So I'm I'm going, well, I better make it nothing this time. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, I think the, the holy grail for this movie is the the remote-controlled BB-8. Yeah. That, um, that is uh, something special. It's still tempting, right? I mean, it, yes. <laughs> when it first, I, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, I, I want to say it's $150. Is that correct? I think US dollars. Yep. And I think they just do a straight conversion over to pounds. So do it, they? Yeah. Okay. So it's 150 pounds, which is just insane <laughs> level of expense. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't even understand it. And yet... I'm strangely drawn to it, so I I do understand that feeling. Mm -hmm. One little story I wanted to tell was that uh, I kept you waiting and, uh, you know, made us uh, late for starting this podcast recording because of something that was very cool to me, and so thank you for going along with this, but I have a very good friend who was feeling sorry for me and the fact that I couldn't specifically play Fallout 4, which I was desperate to play, and he offered to get me an Xbox One console. And with these kind of Black Friday and the lead-up deals, there was one available uh, until tomorrow that came with 
Star Wars Battlefront, the new Tomb Raider game, and FIFA. And it was a great price. And there was the opportunity to go down and pick it up at the shop tonight. And literally, I had to run out and do it. But it meant I was going to be late. And uh, thankfully, you were very patient. And now I have this. And so I'm sitting here looking at it as we chat and, and you know, learning to be very zen and patient. It, it's great. <laughs> you know. Well, I'm very, I'm very excited for you. Um, I haven't gotten Star Wars Battlefront yet. It's on my list. I'm actually currently playing Fallout right now. And that oh. has taken up a lot of time. Um, but, yeah, I did, I did play. I was telling you before, I, I played a little bit of the beta test when that. Mm. When that was running and very impressive, very impressive. Uh, technically, it's it's pretty much the closest I think that you will get to being in the Star Wars movies. Well, you were talking about what they did for mapping the actual uh, ships and, and vehicles and everything in it. Yeah, yeah. They, from what I understand, they got into the actual models and things from the films and digitally. Uh, captured them, you know, took pictures of them and then recreated them digitally. So there's a insane amount of detail and stuff that that goes into it. It's really impressive, you know, the the point that we've gotten with that you you can essentially re- recreate these films and ins- insert yourself in them. Mm. It it is fantastic. I mean, I know this is really someone else's topic, so we won't go over it any further, but it's just really, it's an extension of like big boys toys. It's just, you know, the the next level of our obsession uh, played out in a different way. Very much so, yes. So what was your absolutely most favorite thing overall? If you think back about your star wars sets is there one like even if it wasn't a particular set it was just this one figure that came with something is there something that stands out that's so tough um i think i mentioned in the first episode of force ghost that the slave one is my favorite star wars ship and i did have a slave one lego set with a boba fett minifigure and Mm -hmm. uh yeah i adore that that set wow yeah, it's it's funny how these things do stay with you. It's like it's hard to pick, you know, a favorite. It's like mm-hmm. you know, choosing out of your children or something strange. <laughs> but you know, when pressed, you can do it. I, I don't know if that applies to children, by the way, but but maybe it does. I don't know. I don't. I don't have children yet. I, yeah. I have a cat that my wife and I are pretty fond of, but just the one, so we don't have to choose. There you go. I, I, <laughs> I still kind of feel that if pressed, people could choose, but I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> for me my favorite thing was uh i'm pretty sure it was a b-wing that i had and it was a, a sort of an oversized uh ship and it featured now it wasn't neen nun but it was one of those creatures from his species i can't remember what they were called are, are you are you nerdy enough with this to know and, no, and go- i'd not i wish i was yeah. I mean, I think I'm doing well to say, you know, it's like the guy looks like Neen Nun, except, you know, he's in like a, a white outfit. But it was a super cool ship, quite large. And yeah, I mean, that that was one sexy vehicle. Yeah, the B-Wing is the B-Wing is cool. I think that, definitely my favorite of the Rebel ships. Mm. It's, it's just got that, you know, unique look. I, I'm kind of excited to see with the new film what vehicles and, and ships that they introduced to the mythos, you know, cause I, mm-hmm. 
they they seem to be getting stuff pretty right. I think they're tapping into what Star Wars was and not, you know, what they want it to be or, or what it should be in modern time. So I, I kind of feel that whatever they're doing will, will fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I think a lot of the stuff we've seen so far obviously draws from the original trilogy, you know, we, you know, X-Wings and TIE Fighters. Um, a lot of the, the First Order stuff I've seen seems really utilitarian, kind mm-hmm. of, um, you know, not very visually striking, just kind of, you know, it, it gets the job done. But I'm wondering if there's going to be that kind of, you know, Naboo Starfighter or the yeah. Jedi Starfighter or something like that that's very iconic to that the, to the particular film that it's in because mm. we haven't really seen anything like that yet. I'm hoping so. I mean, obviously, the Millennium Falcon is the, the super iconic thing in this that you keep seeing, and I think <laughs> they're really making a big deal of the fact that you've got that back. But I don't think they'll miss the opportunity to give you something new that fits with everything else. I think <laughs> toy-wise, that might be the thing I'd be tempted to get as a one-off. Like, if there's some really cool-looking new ship that comes with a figure that is something very new to the canon uh, and represents the new film, maybe one of those to have out on display would be would be good. I, I could try and um, have one of those and, and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and for you, it would be a, a Black Series uh, Kylo Ren? Ren? Well, if I was going to go all out, I would get one of the BB-8s or um, you're aware of the, the Force FX lightsabers? Oh, yes. There's a there is a Kylo Ren mm-hmm. um, lightsaber that is very impressive, very expensive, but very impressive. I was forgetting about those two, even though we'd I, already talked yeah, about BB-8. I just, I just remembered the the lightsabers. Yeah, well, th- those things aren't toys. Well, no, they're not. <laughs> I guess any you're that's true. I guess it from a certain perspective. I'm getting Someone's into semantics, you. you know, to to justify things to myself. This is not good. I, I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> oh, did you ever have a one of the um, telescoping extendable lightsabers? Do you know what? I didn't. I what I did have when I was a kid was one of the Han Solo blaster uh, replicas, mm-hmm. and that made all the noise. I never got a lightsaber because. I always thought Han was so much cooler. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. So no. I mean, I get that lightsabers are super cool, but I think I, I'm just going back to my experience, and it was like either Han or Luke, and it was, you know, there was there was no contest. Luke was just whiny, you know. He just wanted to go down to the Tashi station. <laughs> yes. Those power converters. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I. I no, I didn't. But I, I'm guessing that your uh, gleeful question suggests that you did. Well, yes, I did. I had to have a double-bladed Darth Maul lightsaber Excellent. the moment I saw one. Um, I forgot about that. I think that's actually. I think that is actually sitting underneath my my Hello. bed in my old in my old room back home. I think okay. that. And actually, I think I also had a. I think I had a Luke. His uh, his Jedi lightsaber, right? Mm-hmm. Those two, because I always liked that lightsaber better than his 
uh, blue one. Yeah. The, so you're talking about the green one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Jedi yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's those, uh, the the black and gold bits on the on the hilt. Mm-hmm. Like that. Yeah. Man, there's I mean, there's so many cool toys. Not to mention the the ones that you wish exist, like having cooler things. Is there anything that you know you couldn't find, or or that you think didn't exist that you go, I would have loved one of these. You know, I I don't know, but just because I I think that they've done such a good job of capitalizing on everything. If there's ever been one franchise that you, you know could be merchandised, I think Star Wars is the arguably the most successfully merchandised franchise of all time. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I think I, if there is a want, the the people in charge of that are likely to to meet it. Mm. It's true. I mean, they're they're so savvy. Like, George Lucas back in the day was incredibly smart. Probably not the nicest of people, but yeah, he went and got the rights to the likenesses of all those actors back in the day and got them to sign it over because no one had any idea of, you know, what the value of this would be. The the merch associated with Star Wars was unlike anything that had come before. It was genuinely unprecedented, and he was just this savvy customer. It's, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, he, he doesn't know how to sort of shape a beard to save his life, but <laughs> man, financially, he's clever. Yes. Yeah. And look, it's good. You know, he gives away a lot of his money. So, you know, more power to him in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, it, you can only ever scratch the surface of, discussions about the toys because I, I think we could enthuse for ages but i know there's other segments and i guess we've got to allow room for other people to talk yeah i guess so <laughs> was there anything that we didn't hit on that you like man we, we should have said that you know I, i'm sure as soon as we hang up i will think of something but yeah i i think we did a good brief but thorough look back at the history of of star wars toys and merchandise yeah, the, the the personal history of it, you know, there's yeah. there's there's a lot that could be just discussed as far as almost like a documentary style thing with it. But yeah, I think people have got a, a glimpse into us, and uh, I certainly know that you are a big fan of Lego, and like all Americans, it's Legos to you, and I yeah, it's amazing. I I, I don't yeah, I'm I'm always like I think Lego is the plural of Lego, but but then that's you guys interesting. Like, I've never, Legos. yeah, no, it's just, it's always been Legos. Mm. That's it. That's interesting, though. You've opened up a new world to me, a new worldview of, of Lego. Maybe I'll start using that in conversation and see how many strange looks I get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a whole different world, but yeah, that's sort of the the use of it that I am familiar with, and you know, most people I know. But then, you know, whenever we speak to Americans, it's suddenly Legos and. It's a, a case for the semantics again. <laughs> well, thank you for chatting with me, Zach, and for yes, making was, the time. It's, it was awesome. Yes, thank you. It's been great. It's always nice to connect more with you know, the various members of the Multiversity team. And I think this podcast uh, initiative is, is fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. What a great idea by Brian to just unite us with our Star Wars love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Just listening to that first episode, it's great to see just how diverse the site 
is and just you know all of the different experiences mm. that we've had yeah i i haven't finished listening to it yet so i'm i'm looking forward to kind of getting through the rest because it is that little window and lens into each of the people behind it as well as just you know a reminder of what you love about star wars but don't always think about or, or that doesn't first come to mind mm-hmm. excellent that's great man Okay, now we're going to move into the video game portion of our podcast. We're going to start it off with myself and Vince Ostrowski talking about the Super Star Wars series for Super Nintendo. Okay, so Vince and I uh, both recently broke out... Uh, well, I'm going to pretend for this uh, that we broke out actual Super Nintendos to play <laughs> uh, Super Star Wars to talk about it for the podcast, and um, I don't know about you, but I don't remember this game being hard... But it's damn near impossible for a 33-year-old man to beat this game. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, I I remarked the other night that like when I was eight or something, uh-huh. I could just plow through this game in like a short afternoon, you know? <laughs> and I was playing it the other night, and I couldn't get... First of all, I couldn't get to the Sarlacc pit monster at the end of the very first... Uh, first level the fucking level yeah until you put the level difficulty on the easy well no what i realized is i had it on jedi at first Uh, yeah that's what it's like automatically set to it's automatically set to the most difficult which is so weird oh my god okay so then i realized that and then i knocked it down to brave brave and then i made it to the sarlacc pit monster relatively easily Mm -hmm. and then he just whipped my ass yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> and so yeah, so then I put it on easy, and I was more or less able to to plow my way through it then. But but I I don't remember how the Super Nintendo version was or how the difficulty levels were. But I'm fairly certain I didn't have it on easy. If there was such a thing, like did it even have difficulty levels? I don't remember. I don't know. I'm playing it. I purchased it on my Wii. Yeah, I got it on the PS4. Okay, so. It it looks pretty authentic to, you know, to the Super Nintendo experience. Yeah. So I don't remember. Um, so so I guess we're, we're burying the lead here, but I don't care. So how far did you get before you gave up? Well, I on easy I beat the game. Oh, okay, you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I did not give it that much time. Okay. Um, I was get so I I was getting so frustrated at the um, the jumping that you have to do. When you get to after the speeder level on on like, I guess like level like one C if we're calling it that mm-hmm. the um what's it called the the transport like do the it, land speeder the land speeder thing yeah no no the past the land speeder oh the like, uh, the Jawa the Jawa thing yeah yeah the droid yeah, yeah. yeah. I I have a crappy old GameCube controller <laughs> and my jump function I'm, I know I'm like the worst player in the world blaming the controller but like <laughs> the jumping was very inconsistent I found. And at some point, I was like, fuck it. This is, I'm done. Like, I am yeah. so frustrated playing this 16-bit game. I'm just going to do something else with my time. Well, I can't, you know, you can blame it on the controller, but I have to also say that the controls were less, unless it's just the way that it was ported, the tro- the controls are less precise than I remember them being. Okay, maybe that's what it is then, too. Like, yeah, like, the whether you're going to do the higher jumping flip or uh-huh. like or, like, just the, 
the short jump, it kind of feels like more or less a crapshoot. Like that, I think, yeah, exactly. You know, I think you're supposed to be like holding up and then you do the the flip, but I felt like that wasn't always consistent. You know, <laughs> and again, I remember being an eight year old and being and like beating this game like a wizard. You know, <laughs> like, and here I am last night, like feeling totally impotent, like finally fumbling my way through it you know so it's not easy yes yeah, so let's back up a little bit now yeah <laughs> this game came out in 1992 uh i was 10 years old when it came out and i did not own a super nintendo i was a sega genesis kid hmm. but uh friends of mine had it and i remember going over to their house and being extraordinarily excited because to my knowledge and i did not do enough research about this to be totally sure this was the first time i remember you being able to play Scenes from the Star Wars trilogy in a video game, there, there, or, or at least on a console. Yeah, I think there was a Star Wars game for Nintendo, the original, the original NES. Uh-huh. But it was really rudimentary, and like, do you remember the the old Ninja Turtles beat 'em up games? Oh, of course, yeah. I think it was more or less like that. Okay. And, uh, excuse me, I'm not sure how accurate it was as far as, like, scenery or, like, playing out the story was concerned. Right. I just remember, I remember it existing because I remember at one point you flew, like, a little crappy-looking snow speeder. Okay. So I'm pretty sure the story was, like, all jumbled up and, like, it was not, it's not like this where, like, you're literally playing out the locations of the movie in chronological order with just a few liberties taken. Right. You know? Like you're fighting a Sarlacc in, <laughs> in a, a new hope, right? But you're on just, Tatooine. Yes. You know, it's plausible, I guess. Right. <laughs> if we're going by Mythbusters, uh, terminology here, it's a, yeah. it, it's a plausible part of the game. Um, so do you, do you kind of want to go through the, the game? I, did you, um, did you get to revisit Empire or Jedi at all? I revisited Empire a little bit, yes. Okay, because I'd like to more or less tackle them sort of one after the other. Yeah, is sure. That, is that okay? Absolutely. So I guess uh, with Super Star Wars, like things I remember from being a kid was they used John Williams' score and it sounded halfway decent for the time, <laughs> uh, which now sounds, you know, like my wife walked by when I was playing it and she's like, sounds great. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Because uh, it really doesn't sound very good at all anymore. But no, but but you know what? It's it's still like it's still evocative. The, yes, exactly. That's the that's a better word than I would have come up with. Um, it's like 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 it's not exactly right, but the fact that they are able to clearly use, you know, they are not faking. They're just using like a very low bitrate chip tuny version of you know yeah it's not meant to sound similar to his score it is his score right. it's just chipified <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and that was a big deal at the time like the fact that they had the same uh opening credit scrawl that that the films have like all of those things really mattered to me when i was a kid yeah and the fact that they had like little interstitial uh-huh screenshots from yeah. the essentially just digitized from the movie right not quite cut scenes yeah but you know um 
you're right. Like scenes from the film, or I mean, uh, grossly simplified scenes from the film. Like yeah. I, I think on the first level, C three PO is like, you have to help. The Sand People took R two D two. He like lays out exactly what happens in the film, but in like one sentence, as opposed <laughs> to the scenes it would take to establish some of those things. So yeah, exactly. Um, but overall, you know, look, it's a side scroller. It's a game that is very much in line with what Super Nintendo was doing. You know, in ninety two and ninety three, uh, I don't really have any. You know, again, we were we were complaining about maybe the the porting of it with having crappy controls, but I don't really have any complaints about the game itself. I think for what it was at its time, it was pretty great. Yeah, yeah, and I think it. I think for games of its style, like Contra style shooters, you know, uh-huh. I I I think it's up there with any of them, you know. I mean, I I can certainly think of two dozen, um, you know, movie property video games that were just utter crap. Yes. Like, (laughs) so I was was hunting around on YouTube after, like, revisiting these games just to see, like, you know, like what the old Batman games were like. Uh And I came across a playthrough of the old Demolition Man video game. Oh, man. And it looks like total shit compared to compared to what we got with these Star Wars games. So was it because Taco Bell had won the fast food wars? <laughs> Sorry, I, I was, was it me that or something like using seashells to wipe your ass? That's that's way deeper than my knowledge of Demolition. Those Man. are like the two Demolition Man jokes I have. So, <laughs> but yeah, um, the other thing I really like about all the games, but but something that was apparent from the first game. Um, right away was that every level like as your story progressed the play style progressed too so like in the first level you're you're luke with a blaster and then all of a sudden at a certain point you get a lightsaber and oh man i remember being a kid and the first time you get that lightsaber, oh, that you, was huge! Oh man, you you like you like whip it out. It does like the boom thing, and then I'm pretty sure there's like something in the score that like changes or like highlights the fact that you just got a lightsaber. Like you you feel like the ultimate badass, and the game is really not that immersive, you know? Like no, it really isn't. <laughs> you know, it's not, yeah, it's not like like these days where you do a really badass thing in a video game and it's really immersive because it's 3D and it's like you're in this amazing graphical world. No, you're like playing out this 16-bit thing on your screen but it felt so badass once you finally got that lightsaber and you're blocking lasers and oh man, and then... To and me, then, the blocking lasers was actually the coolest part of it. Oh yeah, for sure. Because that that's a really interesting point because in something that um was apparent to me from the very first level was that this is not a game where you are meant to be able to dodge damage like right though like things shoot at you and creatures jump at you and there is no escaping getting hit did you ever play the old Godzilla game for Nintendo no, I can't say I did. That is the worst example of a game where you just have to incur damage. Really? Where it's, you essentially are Godzilla just walking through a field of both landmines and military planes just shooting at you constantly. <laughs> and like you, you can mitigate the damage, but you can't avoid it in the slightest. Oh, man. See, and that's what I felt about playing that first level on the hard difficulty. Because, like, yeah. shit is just flying at me and, like... 
like, yeah, you can replenish. Like, the good thing about it is that all the enemies in Super Star Wars basically give you hearts constantly. Right. But it's such a draining feeling to trudge through the sand and just, like, take all these shots. (laughs) Um, It's a very good point. Yeah, but then you get your lightsaber, and then it's a little easier, and you can jump and flip. And then um, uh, there's, like, the land speeder level, and then later there will be the the X-Wing level, uh-huh. you know, like the, the, it was, it, it never bored you by doing the same thing for very long, you know? Yeah. And that's, that, that's actually pretty unique for its time. I think so. Yeah. Um, I was also impressed both in my original playing and in my playing now with how, like one of the detriments of playing a 16 bit game is that, Obviously, nothing's going to look... You're, you're adapting a film that you can't possibly match the visuals of, right? Because of the, the 16-bit configuration. But what I liked about the design of Super Star Wars and all the games is that they were able to find sort of the essence of what things were supposed to look like and nail that essence. So even if it doesn't really look like what you're what it's supposed to, it looks close enough that you're aware of it and you can buy into it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, any other notes specifically on Super Star Wars before we move on to Empire? Um, no, I, I I don't think so. Um, I I guess I would say that. Um, well, first of all, it's available on Wii and PlayStation Four, and I don't know if it's anywhere else either. Um, but I I. You can get that now, and I'm hoping that they do come out with ports of Empire and Jedi. They have for the Wii. They have? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, I got to get on that then because... 800 Wii points. (laughs) All right. I don't know what that is in in American dollars. In Bitcoin? (laughs) In Bitcoin. (laughs) No, that's uh, eight American dollars. Oh, okay. Which Which is a bit high. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's okay. Yeah. So, okay, so Empire. So the main thing, um, so because I wasn't able to actually play Empire, I just watched like a Let's Play of it. I did the same thing. Okay. But what I remember vividly about it after watching that was how cool, right off the bat, the snowspeeder level when you can... Oh, man. When you can like trip up the... The AKT, yep, exactly. Yeah, like... I, I remember that being like the lightsaber moment from yep from the first game. You know, like oh my god, I can actually pull one of these massive things down just like they did in the movie. You know, it blew my tiny little mind. Well, to tell you how much fun I had with that scene, I remember playing it with my friends, and we specifically started the game over to play it again. Yeah, like we didn't care about advancing to the next level. That was so much fun. We wanted to do it again. It's so satisfying. Yeah, it really, really is. And you know what else? Did, did you ever play? Um, I think it was called. Sh- was it called Shadows of the Empire for uh, the N sixty four? No, but uh, Matt Garcia is going to talk about that in a few minutes. Oh, no. all right. Well, uh, good segue. A little bit early yeah. there, <laughs> but uh, but just to set the stage, um, it took place between Empire and Jedi. Except that there was a, there was a Hoth level still. Okay. And 
now that that was 3D, you know, it was N64. But again, the most satisfying thing about that game was being able to do the tow cable and take down <laughs> the AT-AT. So a running theme in Star Wars video games is that that is the That's awesome. thing that you can yeah. do. <laughs> I am um, sure it's fun in Battlefront 2. Yeah, which I someday I'll probably I'll try that game, but is anyone talking about that? No, because I don't think any of our staff currently plays that. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah, then I guess other things about Empire. Um, I remember it being just as good as Super Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, I also had, had a, just, a, just a weird observation that isn't really about the game, which is that I think this, we can pinpoint this time, like... 1992 or so as the last time that Star Wars could mean both the series and the first film. Yeah. (laughs) It's before A New Hope became the the only descriptor given of that film. Episode 4, A New Hope. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, when I was a kid there was a lot of contention in my family because when my brother saw it and when my dad saw it, it was Star Wars. It wasn't a new hope. So when I would call it a new hope, they would they would make fun of me and say, What is you know, what is that? That's not right. that's not a that's not anything, you know. Yeah. Um but yeah, so that that's this is kind of where the distinction started happening. and this is right before well, I guess it's about five years before they um he did the special editions. Right. This right? is right before the THX remastering. Oh yeah. Which those, those were my movies as a child. Like, yep. I remember having that box set of VHS tapes and that was before the special editions ruined everything. <laughs> I had, I, I have owned star Wars three times on VHS, the pre THX remasters, the THX remasters, and then the special editions. Mm-hmm. And I've never owned it on Blu-ray or DVD. Ah, yeah. And see, I have those DVDs that have the theatrical versions. I'm so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> well, my uh, my fiance and I watched A New Hope um, just the other night because we're going to watch them all before The Force Awakens. Yeah. And we watched, of course, I will not watch the special editions. And we watched the theatrical version. And warts and all, I don't care. <laughs> like... That movie is so much better without all that extra crap thrown in. I know this has nothing to do with Super Star Wars. But, That's okay. <laughs> but I just let it to, out, my friend. Let it yeah, out. I have to reiterate how much better it is, how much more it flows, how much more pure it is. Even if it's kind of like, I mean, it is hokey at times, I guess, and it kind of looks definitely the THX remasters before the special editions would be the preferable version to have, I think. And that's not what's on the DVDs? No, the, what's on the DVDs is the original theatrical... Oh, okay. With, ...with no changes made. That's so you, interesting. You can see, like, the shitty... There's, like, a black square around every, Everything, yeah. Every ship that fly, Yeah, everything that's against that matte painting mm-hmm. has, like, a black square around it. <laughs> and... I believe at certain points you can even see the the wires that are holding the models. Yeah. Found, you know, but I I don't care. I mean, I'll take that over like 
these lifeless, shiny CGI ships floating in space. You know, it's just... I love it. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Um, Super Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. One one more thing I want to mention about that before we potentially move on. Actually, two things. One, you got to ride the Tauntaun. Another amazing childhood moment, yes. Yes, yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to, to remark is that I... Granted, I only saw somebody doing this on the video, but I do kind of remember it from childhood, how anticlimactic the fight with Darth Vader was. Yeah, isn't it like less than two minutes? I remember thinking it was really easy compared to earlier boss battles in the game. Because you lose. like Story-wise, story you lose. So they That's didn't, true, yeah. <laughs> so, so they didn't bother making it all that dramatic because... You're going to get your hand chopped off and fall down a giant tunnel or whatever. Yeah, so. and Vader, Vader spends most of the battle throwing, throwing like, mechanical sh- or, like, infrastructure shit at <laughs> yeah. you. Which happens for, like, two seconds in the film. Yeah, exactly, but that's, like, his whole strategy in the video game. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's... that's we'll call that the Count Dooku approach. Yeah, right. <laughs> Somebody speaking of Count Dooku, I saw somebody um, just isolate the GIF of him doing the uh, Force lightning uh-huh. from the prequels, and when when you take it out of the scene and you just isolate that moment of him doing the Force lightning, and you take away all the sound and everything, <laughs> um, uh, it's Christopher Lee, right? Yes. He half-asses it so much. <laughs> like, he barely raises his hand and, like, doesn't even... You know, when when the Emperor... When Palpatine does it, he, like, puts everything into it, you know? Yeah. And when when Dooku does it, it's like, eh. <laughs> he, like, limply lifts his hand up and all this lightning shoots out of it. It's like... Bella Lugosi at the end of Bride of the Monster, where yeah. he's in the pit with the uh, octopus, and he just like he's just throwing the rubber arms all over himself. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. Or like when, or like <laughs> this is we're getting way off track. Yeah, we are. It's okay. But, uh, but here's a George Lucas tie-in. Okay. I, I always think of the end of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull uh-huh. when <laughs> the alien comes out of the ground, and Harrison Ford is more or less looking at it like it's. Like, absolutely nothing is going on. Right, yeah. Like, like it might as well be, like, someone eating a sandwich. <laughs> he's watching. And it just flies away, and he's like, eh, eh all right. <laughs> Guess that happened. Uh, I've only seen that movie once in the theater. And I booed twice during it, like, in the right. theater. <laughs> the, 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 the monkey scene with Shia LaBeouf. Yes. And the... Uh, uh, CGI aliens at the end, or the the refrigerator? The refrigerator. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is so early on in the movie, too. It is, yeah. But um... That was the point. I didn't boo, but I, that was the first point that I remember thinking, uh, oh. oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I, I saw it with a bunch of friends opening night, and we got there, like, you know, probably 30 minutes before the movie started, but it was 10 minutes too late. So we were sitting, like, way up close. And it's just nothing about my viewing experience of that film was ideal. And I was so excited for that movie. So excited for that movie. Yeah. <laughs> so much so that I, I bought a bottle of Crystal Skull Vodka from Dan Aykroyd himself. 
I'm not joking. I traveled 40 minutes to go to a Dan Aykroyd Crystal Skull vodka signing thing. Um, and he signed, he looked, he didn't look up from his table. He was smoking a cigar and he signed my bottle of Crystal Skull, Crystal Skull vodka. And I was planning on having an after party where we got drunk on Crystal Skull vodka. And he just didn't feel we up just, to it. Nope, didn't even do it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. The thing that I remember leaving the theater from that movie was uh, my, my friends and I were more or less kind of silent. And, like, nobody nobody really – you could tell that we wanted to, like, talk about it, but that it was going to be really negative. Right. And then somebody – a, a group of guys walked up behind us or like we're walking out behind us, you know? Uh-huh. And one of them just goes, that fucking sucked. <laughs> and and then my friends and I looked at one another and we were like, yeah, that's what, yep. That's what we were going to communicate to one yeah. another, but couldn't, you know? Yeah. I, I also just want to say I booed quietly so my friends would hear. I wasn't the guy in the theater going, boo! Oh, like, okay. All right. Know. I was like, oh, boo. <laughs> I'm not going to be that guy in a movie. No, but, yeah. don't be that guy. But, yeah. Um, okay. So. Su- super, super return of the, or do you have anything left on Empire? No. Um, I, uh, as it is with the films, I think Super Empire is the best of the, of the three. Yeah. Specifically because of the Hoth stuff. Oh, for sure. And if I recall correctly, again, I didn't watch the full playthrough, is there a level of where you're um, in the Millennium Falcon in the asteroid field? Yes. I remember that being a lot of fun, too. Yep, yep. That was very good. And that provides a good contrast to the, the Jedi game, which we'll talk about in a second, I'm sure. But yes, in, in Empire, that level was fun and unique and not too difficult for words, you know? Right, <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, when I was researching these games, again, I hadn't played them in almost 20 years, uh, I was taken aback at how much worse Return of the Jedi is considered than the other two games. Then I watched a little bit of the playthrough, and I'm like, oh yeah, this wasn't a very good game. <laughs> yeah. Which is really odd, isn't it? It is odd, because um, as far as I know, I-, I think you said there was a different development team... Maybe or, or 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 they had to rush it out. They didn't have enough time. There was some. There was some circumstance that was. There was something that was blamed. Yeah. But as far as I know, the the main, like it was deeply tied into Lucasfilm. It was the same publisher at least. Yeah. Um and and everything everything looked the same. So you would have thought that it would have felt the same and had been designed similarly, you know. And it wasn't like there was a platform change coming either. This is years before Nintendo 64. Right, right. So it's not like they it got messed up because it was developed for one platform but released for another. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think the interesting, because you brought that up to me when we decided we were going to talk about this. And... Considering the last time that I probably played these games was when I was in like single digits for my age, mm-hmm. um, I I originally thought ah, they they were all the same, game. right? Like, right? They, like, there's no way that that's true, you know. But you're right. I I watched the playthrough and I started to remember certain key differences that I probably overlooked when I was a kid, mm-hmm. 
or I didn't realize, like, when I was a kid, I probably just thought, oh, it's just the way, like, I didn't know where video games came from, or, like, right. what, what went into them, you know, like, oh, that's just the way it was, but, but no, you're right, there's, there's certain design aspects of Jedi that are, first of all, less accurate than <laughs> the other two were about copying their source material, right, like, one major thing, and this is this is pretty superficial, but it's kind of a microcosm of the whole, the greater picture. Did you did you see what the Rancors look like? Oh, and it looks terrible. They're terrible, and they're the size of, they're the same size as... As Luke, right? Yes, essentially, they're the same height. So, and they pop out of the ground, and it's like, you, you blow them away in, like, one swipe of your lights. It's like... <laughs> that should have been a boss battle. Absolutely, you know? yeah. You know? And they're the And then the actual final boss battle of Jabba's Palace, I believe, is some weird lumpy creature that doesn't even exist in the stuff. like <laughs> it was not it was not even you know, every minor alien in Star Wars has a name. Right, and that this, doesn't this one didn't even exist. Yeah, this was like... And again, they did the Sarlacc in Super Star Wars. They right. could have done it. They could have done the Sarlacc, or or one um, suggestion that I saw that I kind of liked was, what about Boba Fett? Oh, yeah. Like, like, make him the boss of that level somehow, and then he ends up in the Sarlacc pit like a little bitch, you know? Yeah. But... Uh... <laughs> I, I wonder if, like... You have to like if they could do it like the screen goes black and you're playing as blind Han and you have to just, like fumble around until you knock him into the uh, into the <laughs> yeah. Sarlacc pit. Yeah, that would have been more entertaining than what they came up with. Can I can I do a, a brief um, a brief Boba Fett commentary here? It would have uh, more relevance than some of the stuff we've talked about. So Did far. you hear the thing about Bob Fett? <laughs> Okay, so again, file this under Star Wars shit I heard in the 90s and never bothered to research. Supposedly, Lucas was beat up in school by a kid named Bob Fett, and he named the character Boba Fett after him, and was so mad after fans loved him, that that's why he killed him like a bitch in Jedi, because he was like, man, this fucker beat me up in high school, and now he everyone thinks he's cool again. Fuck him! Fuck him in the ass! We're gonna knock him into the Sarlacc pit! Like, you know... I don't... I, again, I have no idea if it's true or not. I don't even want to look it up. I just I want to believe that, because that's a beautiful story. That goes back to the, the overarching theme of the worst moments of George Lucas's time with Star Wars being due to things that were going on in his personal life. Exactly. You know, the entire prequels were a supposed product of his divorce or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of... Um, a lot of a uh, lot of stuff not dealt with. By there, the way, just just putting a putting a, a pin in our prequels conversation. Did you see the other bit of Star Wars news that dropped today? Uh, no. They confirmed no Jar Jar. Oh, <laughs> as if they needed to. Yeah, Lachaim. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um. So, Super Return of the Jedi. Um, yeah. What's weird to me about this game is that Return of the Jedi, if you think about it, has so many great set pieces that just like it, it to me, making a New Hope a game is much more is much harder than making Jedi a game. 
because there are so many pieces of Jedi that are just perfectly suited to be boss stages. Sure, yeah. And I feel like they didn't take advantage of half of them. No. They they do a speeder chase like on Endor because you kind of have to. Yep. But yep. it's but it's not very good if I if I remember. <laughs> um, do they? They must have at least one Ewok battle. They do. They have you actually play as Wicket. Right. Yeah. Which that okay? That is one thing that I will give Super Return of the Jedi. When the game starts, you're playing as. Uh, Leia in the Bosk uniform. Right. And then you play as Luke with the green lightsaber, which I remember yep. starting that game. That was such a cool reveal. Like, I mean, you knew it was coming because you knew the movies, but but like the moment that he appears and then you're playing as him with the green lights, it's just, it's badass all over again. You know? I, I think we were just so used to games cutting corners. Yeah, with storytelling, especially that when it when it happened, like oh wow, they they really did that. Right, like it would have been easy for the, there. A lot of times these um, adaptations, like they they play out parts of the stories with characters that didn't necessarily do those things in the films or whatever. Right, just for convenience of having you be the same character and taking you from one point to the next in a logical way, but. But these games were all really good at changing up your appearance, changing up the type of level you were in, and that's something that Return of the Jedi kept, even if it was like a lesser version of this game. Right. Uh, that was something that that was the spirit that it kept. Um, <laughs> right down to playing as Wicket, which was actually, I thought it was fun too. Like I, I don't know, I'm not the hugest Ewoks fan, but. Uh, but I, it's kind of fun to run around as little Wicket. And you're like Absolutely. Shorter than all these other characters. And... <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but like, you know, Jabba's Palace could almost be a game into itself. Oh, for sure. You yeah. know, if you're playing as Leia in the beginning, and then you switch over to being um, Luke, and you could do Luke at both, like, first encountering Jabba, and then... Um, you can have him. I mean, there's, 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 it just it writes itself, right? And so there's no excuse for that game to be any worse than the other two because they're giving you even easier set pieces to build levels around. For sure, yeah. Um, yeah. but but obviously it it didn't work out that way somehow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was just it was weird. Um. And then the other major difference with this. Oh, first of all. <laughs> Again, with an anticlimactic um, boss battle at the end, <laughs> you face the Emperor, and from what I remember as a kid, you can basically stand where he's standing <laughs> and jump over and over again and smash yep. him with your lightsaber, and he will maybe move like once or twice in the course of the battle, but for the most part, you can just sit there and hammer on him, <laughs> and he'll shoot like force lightning out into the air, but it will be away from you because you're like pasted behind him. Right. <laughs> so it's like you, you basically can't be hit if you're doing it right. And what's interesting about that is I feel like the boss levels in the first two games are relatively, they're not impossibly difficult, but there's not like a secret to each of them. You have to actually do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like 
there's a pattern that you have right. to follow. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but then the the major difference that I can point to to where a, a level in the Empire game succeeded and then the similar one in the Jedi one failed was I don't know if you remember this, but at the end of the Jedi game, you're flying the Falcon through I I believe it's through the a Death Star channel or a, a yes, or and I remember it being impossible. Yes, it's first of all, it is so overly long. Like, yeah, it's way longer than it has to be. And second of all, like as a kid, I remember being able to get through that game pretty easily, and then I would spend like an hour just trying to get through this final. Didn't this you final, have? Did like, you have to make level. a bunch of turns? Like you had to figure out which way to turn. And it was like a maze, or am I making that up? The well, it wasn't quite a maze, but what would happen was it would, you would have to move left and right and up and down, and it was very like, you'd get to the end of one segment and then all of a sudden it would go down, and so you had to like maneuver down. And I remember the, I'm sure I'm gonna get called like a plebe for this, I <laughs> <laughs> like somebody who's played the game more recently, but I remember in doing these turns and these up and down directional changes, it was always a lot slower than you thought it should be. And you'd end up like banging into the, yep. it wasn't, that was the great thing about the empire game. It felt more precise and you had a targeting reticle that you could like put on things and it was more or less accurate. And in this Jedi game, it was more or less like you were poking your way through the dark <laughs> with a dark pair of sunglasses on. Right. You know? Like like I really felt like it was luck to get to the end of this particular uh spaceship level, you know. Whereas the the previous games relied on mostly skill with maybe just a little bit of luck. Yeah. That was always my impression. Yeah, I agree with that. I remember that Death Star level being so frustrating. Yeah. And then at one point, like, it starts on fire, and, like, you know you're near the end, and uh-huh. then I would just die at that point. Oh, <laughs> my God, it was so... Oh. So, you know, looking back on the series sort of as a whole, do you have any... Has your impression changed after re- revisiting them this past week, or does it, you know, do your memories seem more or less accurate? Well, aside from Return of the Jedi being clearly weaker than the other two I think my impressions of them were more or less the same I guess I thought I I thought the controls were tighter and again I don't know whether that has something to do with the way that it was ported over to a new system or whether they were just always a little loosey goosey and as a kid I just didn't know or care about that you know I had that thought too like oh are these controls shitty or were controls just shitty then yeah, right. Like, yeah, were they the same? I mean, nothing ever controls like a Mario game, you know, where you can basically stop on a dime. Right. But were, were the majority of games like this? I, you know, I don't remember. Um, but I certainly had fun replaying that first one. And I had enough fun that I would love to, I mean, I guess I could go get them on, on the Wii, but I'd love to see them on my PlayStation 4, considering that's where I got the original one now. Yeah. I, I'm sure that they'll bring them there eventually. Yeah, you would think so. If they're going to bring one over, they might as well bring them all over. Yeah. 
All right, Vince, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brian. This was fun. forward in the Nintendo line of gaming systems, we're now going to hear a quick monologue from Matt Garcia about the N64. You haven't seen Star Wars until you've seen it in glorious 64 bits. I'm of course talking about Shadows of the Empire and the Nintendo 64. Released in 1996, this was part of a cross-media platform with a novel and a comic telling the story of Dash Rendar, trying to help Luke, Leia, and Lando concoct a plan to rescue Han but then getting involved with the plot as the wicked Zezer wants to become the new Darth Vader or some shit. Uh, one of the things that I think is cool about this is that it takes place between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Not a lot of stories fall in this time period for the notable reason that there's no Han Solo, and that is a lacking exception. I mean, we do get uh, Dash Rendar, but he's not really anything. He's just kind of like an N64 avatar for you. Um, his bicep muscles, though, look like they're inflatable devices, so I don't know why he always freaking drowned in the sewer levels. I'll be honest, I'm not actually too big on video games. Oftentimes, my attention span for them is much shorter than the game itself. So, like, I love to death Skyrim and the Fallout games and Grand Theft Autos and the Metal Gears. Um, but I don't think I've actually finished any of them. Uh, but I did pull out my Nintendo 64 system for this uh, podcast, and despite some difficulty in some of the early levels... I actually was entertained for the few hours it took me to beat it. Shadows of the Empire, the game has aged okay. The gameplay is a little clunky, but that just might have been the Nintendo 64 controller. I did fall off cliffs a lot. Uh, there's only so much story that the producers were able to fit in, and most of that is told through expository scrawls that I never really paid attention to, so it's thanks to reading the novel a long time ago and a Wikipedia article that I had any idea what was going on. Some of the levels, like the sewers or escaping the Hoth base, go on forever. Forever. And seriously, fuck the swoop bike levels. And fuck that opening Hoth battle. Even maps I thought were cool as a kid, like the train sequence, came off as boring now. That's just following things like Uncharted 2. But most everything comes off as boring following Uncharted 2. It's those space battles, though. The first part of the game basically follows the plot of Empire Strikes Back as you have to get off Hoth and through the asteroid fields as the Imperials attack. And that asteroid field shootout is just this dizzying blast as you're swerving everywhere and shooting all these TIE fighters and TIE bombers and trying your best to get out of there. Uh, the final attack on Zezer's mothership is well done and actually kind of ambitious. It has like these three parts where you're, again, in a swivel fighting battle, but then you have to fly inside the mothership itself and take out its core. Um, there's a, not a lot of these sequences, and you don't get to control the ship for the most part, but it's literally some of the most fun I've ever had with the game recently. I'm actually lying because I totally just beat Lego Raiders of the Lost Ark. Shadows of the Empire is cool for what it is, and I liked it a lot as a kid, and it's probably still better than a fair chunk of Star Wars-related games. I mean, it's no Knights of the Old Republic, but I still think it's relatively fun.
We're going to hear two conversations right now. First, Ken and Walt talking about Knights of the Old Republic, and then Ken and Zach talking about Rogue Squadron. Enjoy. Hi, this is Walt, uh, former editor at Multiversity Comics, and I'm here with uh, Ken Godverson, and we're going to be talking about Knights of the Old Republic, the uh, two video games from Bioware and Obsidian that were huge, at least the first one, huge successes, and personally, as uh, discussed in our earlier uh, podcast, reignited my love of the setting. Uh, So, Ken, did you play... KOTOR, the first one, right when it came out, or was it sometime afterward? Alright, well, just first thing, before I get into that, I just want to specify there's only two games. That's right. it. There's nothing after it. <laughs> what, for Despite those... what people try to tell me, there's after Sith Lords, there's nothing else. For, for those of you who are not uh, up to date, there was a... Well, according to... Oh no, to... it's still around... But again, it's it's not a game, as we've told you. Right. There was a an MMO by I believe Bioware did the did Bioware or was it EA who did the Bioware MMO? did it, but uh, EA basically said make it an MMO. Right. So that's what Ken is alluding to. So uh, back to where we were. When did you first play Knights of the Old Republic, the first one, Ken? Uh, I, I played it when it first came out in 2003. It was actually one of the um, probably one of the first games for the Xbox I had. Yeah, I, it was definitely a. It seemed to me like it was a big seller at the time, a big uh, moving people to the Xbox who weren't already there for you know the big system seller for the Xbox, the Halo franchise. I actually, for me, it was a few months after its release. I got it on the PC back when. You know, PC games came on like four or five discs, and I remember, you know, installing it one at a time. Um, so Ken and I, both fans of the series, but we have one disagreement. I think that the second one is one of the greatest RPGs of all time. Not just uh, Star Wars, but it is one of my favorite games, period. Okay. All right. I, I... <laughs> painting me as a bad guy here. <laughs> no, no. We um, deep down we both love both of these games. No, um yeah. <laughs> um I guess uh all right, my thing with 2 is if, when you're getting down to the whole technical RPG aspects of it, I actually really do enjoy it. I do think it was one of the um one of the forerunners of like heavy customizable RPG video games in the mid 2000s. My thing with 2 was always it had the story I liked what that story could have been if that makes sense. Sure. And, oh, go ahead. The, th- the thing about 2 was it was rushed out. Yes, absolutely. It was really rushed out and you can tell when you because I haven't played 2 in years. I know that uh they've gone back and updated a lot of it. It actually just recently got a patch, a big patch for its 10 year anniversary, which I haven't played yet. But as I played it on the Xbox, you could tell a lot of things were cut, a lot of things were half finished, and it didn't 
gel as well as it should have. And that's certainly a fair criticism. Now, of course, I don't want to, when talking about these two, on the off chance that people listening haven't uh, played these games, especially uh, since some people might be coming with a new renewed interest in Star Wars, we'll try to avoid spoilers. But there's, I feel there's a very big difference in tone between Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2. One has, I feel, it's a very classic feel. It feels like the movies in a lot of ways, even though it's supposedly set, what is it, uh, 3,000 uh, years before? Yeah. Uh, well, I've got the uh, TV Tropes page open because <laughs> I need to refresh myself. It is, to be precise, 3,956 years before the Battle of Yavin. Ah, uh, so closer to four. Yeah, it's about 4,000 years. Now, now, did you read any of the... Uh, either the comic that followed Knights of the Old Republic and had the same name, or any of the Tales of the Jedi comics that were from Dark Horse, I believe, either in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s. I did not read... I the My first and really my only um, dive into the Old Republic was with these games, and I read a little bit of, those, of a few of those Old Republic novels that came out to mm -hmm. go with that game that doesn't exist. <laughs> Yeah, I I haven't heard great things about those. <laughs> there, there. Okay, all right. We should give a basic idea of essentially the cent one of the central characters of Knights of the Old Republic one and two, uh, the Sith Lord Darth Revan. Yeah. So. Yeah. Revan is a is sort of a in the first one kind of a background character at first. You hear yeah. a lot about what Revan did in terms of, uh, at this time, back in the prehistory of Star Wars, there were. This is a time where both Jedi and Sith are running rampant. You know, it's not yeah. like the prequels where there were Jedi but the Sith were unknown. Yeah. No, they're both. This was way before the Sith rule of two, where there right. was just one master, one apprentice. That technically still exists in this. Era, there's only technically two Jedi, two Sith that are co that have the title of Darth, but there's a load of dark Jedi running around. Right, they're sort of like on a lower tier. Yeah. Um, and so one of the antagonists of sorts in this is you've got uh, Darth Revan, who you mainly hear a lot about um, until a certain point in the game, who has uh, he and his apprentice, Darth Malak, went to uh, fight the Mandalorians. At this point, for those of you who might not know, Mandalorians, they're sort of, they're not necessarily a race in Star Wars. They're kind of more like a, they're just a cultural... A, yeah, a cultural society of humans. And everyone knows at least one Mandalorian, they just don't know it, the ever-famous Boba Fett. Um, and Django, I suppose. Um, and so this was the core, one of the core conflicts at both games is the idea of Revan and Malak being told by the Jedi Council to not go to war with the Mandalorians and then deciding, no, this is right to do. This is what we, what we should do for the betterment of all. Then they disappear for some time and return at the head of a giant Sith fleet. Exactly. Believed to have fallen and proved to have been fallen. And 
Revan in particular casts his shadow over the entire franchise, really. Yes, any anything and any anything that um, is set after that point, whether it's the second game, whether it's the MMO. Also, I know you said you didn't read it, but the uh, Dark Horse series of the same name, which kind of runs concurrently with the series, it doesn't like it. It doesn't uh, follow the events of the video game, but it's set during that time and sort of the events that are going on are kind of happening in the background in the comic and Revan casts and even like even to this day because I mean if you are just getting into Star Wars with The Force Awakens um Kylo Ren's armor and especially his mask take a lot of influence from Darth Revan I know know he's supposed to be a uh, like he's taking like a lot of influence from Vader, but you look at a picture of Kylo Ren and you look at a picture of Revan and you see a lot of similarities in the design. Though, if you haven't played the first game, listeners, I might advise against Googling Darth Revan because... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, well, you know, I get why one should be hesitant. See, but again, usually if you Google it, you're going to get the armor. Yes. So maybe maybe stick to Google Images. <laughs> yeah, just stick to Google Images. Don't look at any articles until you play the game. Because, and this is sort of a spoiler in saying that there is a spoiler, but like, like Empire, Kotor packs are really great The whole thing, the really whole thing with Revan and his sto- the storyline around Revan is what made the story of especially the first one, so great. But to say any more about it is a huge spoiler. Right. It's one of those things that's difficult to talk around. Yeah. But, so, with the first game, you have that sort of classic Star Wars feel to it. You know, there's... uh, One of the things that they kind of emphasized at the time was having your character throughout it, you know, choose light side or dark side-ish options. Um, Yeah. And, you know, that it's, this sort of, you know, choice had certainly been done in Western RPGs before, but it had, this was such, like, a direct Star Wars approach to it. Yeah, and, and which Bioware would continue on with Mass Effect with the whole Paragon yes. and Renegade. I, keep, keep going, I mean, I could segue <laughs> into that, but this is not a Mass Effect podcast. <laughs> um, that's fine. So, and I feel that that's one of, one of the things that the first one has above the second is that it feels so much like Star Wars. I feel that anyone who loves the movies will love. Especially especially 4 and 5. Yes, especially. Because I... When I rank... Because in the Expanded Universe, there's a lot of stories that are not great. Right. Knights of the Old Republic, from a story perspective is probably my favorite story before the movies. I think that's fair. Um, It is definitely the one I think the most about when I'm not thinking about the actual movies. Right. Now, the uh, second one, on the other hand, is... A bit of a different beast. It's a bit of a different beast, but that's what I love about it, because uh, it was developed by Obsidian, who... I forget if was previously uh, Black Isle Studios or at most of the same people which was responsible for some great 
RPGs from the 90s, such as you know, the Fallout games, um, Planescape Torment, and um, Icewind Dale, and they have a really great writing staff. And so essentially what Obsidian did was they looked at Star Wars, we have like, you know, Star Wars is very much about duality, light side, dark side, the balance of that. And, you know, duality of morality is a very, it's part of what makes Star Wars Star Wars. Yeah. It, and it causes people to kind of write it off and maybe deservedly so. As, as a bit, yeah, as a bit morally simplistic. Childish. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what Obsidian did was they took a look at this and were kind of like, all right, this is a core part of Star Wars. How, Let's deconstruct the hell out of it. How how far can we push it while still yeah. making it feel like Star Wars? And uh, Ken, as Ken mentioned earlier, this was a game that came out with a lot of bugs. They pushed it uh, to. I'm pretty sure it was when they were trying to get like a Christmas deadline, right? I believe I believe it was something like that. They wanted to push it out in time it, for the, the holidays. Point is, it, it was pushed out early. But even <laughs> and it shows. Yeah, and I I first played it on the Xbox myself. So, you know, I played so did I. the really buggy, yeah. especially once you'd get towards the end, things, there were some areas that were clearly condensed, some conversations that were clearly skipped, and it just bugged out at points, you know, just technical failures, too. Oh, it's it's even worse when you try to play it on a 360. Oh, I bet. <laughs> it's because a lot of the sound files don't work with the 360. Oh, but yeah, like... Uh... Cutting out you'll just all of a sudden get this really sharp, uh, sharp level of static. Well, so, like, if you're playing it at night, it's like <laughs> a freaking jump scare. But, um, so, but even then, when I played it at the time, in spite of all of its flaws, I just found it fascinating, because I felt they, they, Obsidian did a great job of really pushing what Star Wars could be, because I still feel, while it's a different sort of Star Wars than we're used to, it's still very much Star Wars. I yeah, think. it was a it was a very different. It was an examination of like the morality of Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. And I get no character. I think pushes the duality of Star Wars more than uh than Kraya. Yes, and she's a. She is a fast like for all the for all my full problems I have with um, Knights of the Old Republic two, she's a fascinating character. Yes, Kreia is an interesting character who was created in this game, uh, one of the first ones that you encounter. Uh, who she's mis she's a kind of mysterious. She's an older Jedi of some sort, though she does not like the title. Uh, she doesn't like either title. Right. Like, that's her big she, thing. Yeah, she forsakes both the name Jedi and Sith. And this has been done before in throughout the EU, you know, the idea of the gray Jedi that yeah. don't believe necessarily in, you know, the light side or the dark side, viewing it all as one thing. But what they did with Kreia was a little bit different. I think it was, you know, they had sort of, they even had a character similar to that in the first game, uh, Jolie. Uh, was supposed to be yes he was supposed to be a gray jedi but i think in my experience and i haven't read like everything in the eu or anything like that but kreia was the first time where i think that they really sucked the landing with this this sort of 
force like, neutral character. A force neutral who she uses the force, but she doesn't adhere to either the Jedi or Sith's right. very and, narrow views. And the and the interesting thing was that it's not just that she is morally neutral, but she's also kind of against the force. So the idea of like how it uh it binds all things as they say in the movies but she doesn't view that as a good thing and no yeah she doesn't yeah so she she's definitely a great addition to the greater star wars eu and yeah. help by i've forgotten her name but her voice actress i think is just incredible. hold on incredible uh sarah kesselman yeah and i don't know yeah, she if did a great job i don't know if anyone else she is uh, portrayed in it. I don't know. I have to hold on. So. But, as mentioned before, it uh, is admittedly taken back by from set, some setbacks in terms of bugs and stuff like that. But, she was, uh... Yeah, she's, um... She's a little bit more in theater than, uh... Yeah, I think I remember the, seeing yeah, that Yeah, she before. does a lot of theater. Wow. Which I could believe. Yeah. Um, and I think the good thing about the second one is these days, if you're playing it now, you mentioned that they released a patch for the 10-year anniversary, but as well there's been a... It shows how much the game was kind of rushed out when it was like almost finished, that there were still like a lot of these files and stuff in the data that essentially they just hadn't like connected point A to point B so people were actually able to reconstruct it if you uh, are if any of our listeners are interested in playing it or have played it and want to check it out again there's a great mod out there called the uh, Sith Lords Restored Content Mod that adds most and just most stuff that was cut um, because it's not like fans reconstruct you know coming up with like okay we were told that this is going to happen so we're going to rewrite this the script to make it happen. No, it's actual content that was there in game's data. It just wasn't part of the game because they had to rush it out. Very odd, the policies of big name video game producers. Yeah, I, I, you know what it reminds me of if we're talking about a more contemporary um, example? It reminds me of all the stuff behind um, Metal Gear Solid Five. Yes, I think that's because, a good comparison. All right, for those who don't follow uh, video games, Metal Gear Solid Five: The Phantom Pain, while a fantastic game, it's definitely up there as my potential game of the year, was not completed. In fact, a whole, the whole final chapter of that game is not in the game. It was removed. And it leaves you with a very disappointing ending. It's a similar thing that happened here because I was very disappointed with um, with either of the two endings for Code R2. Because it just it just ends. It does. It, I I will concede that. While I like it better of the two, it does kind of just and that's it. And that's it. Well, I mean. I guess we do have to talk about the game that we keep saying doesn't exist. Okay. Now, I don't remember if this is true. 
Knights, there was supposed to be a Knights of the Old Republic 3. Yes, and I believe it was going to be Obsidian working on it again. Yeah, but then Bioware and Obsidian got bought by Electronic Arts. And Electronic Arts wanted an MMO. And they got their MMO, and that's how we got Star Wars The Old Republic. Now, The Old Republic is interesting in that... Yeah. So, Ken mentioned earlier reading some of the uh, novelizations, or not novelizations, but novels that are connected. And kind of, you know, the interesting thing that happens with both uh, Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2 is that your character, like a lot of Western RPGs, you make your character. And while there's some aspects in both games, you've got some aspects of your background are set in stone, you know, you make different choices throughout the game. So there's kind of a, um, a difficulty in, well, how does this, what, is, what of this can be considered canon? Easy answer now, none of it is, but at the time... None of it is. Um... Because Old Republic is set, I believe it's like 300 years after the end of 2. Maybe. So it has it has um, some connections, like one of the main like Jedi NPCs is like the descendant of a character from the first Knights of the Old Republic. Right. But... Again, it feels so... I mean, there's enough talk about, like, a Sith Empire, like, the true Sith Empire in Knights of the Old Republic 2, where they finally make their appearance in the MMO. Right. But it's, but it's still so detached from the rest of the, uh, the story that has been built. Right. And I know a lot of people were um, kind of upset that by establishing, you know, the new canon of the Old Republic, the MMO, as well as the novels linked to it, it kind of basically filled in the gaps of one and two, like saying, okay, well, this was the quote-unquote real thing that happened. And yeah. Whereas a really interesting thing that uh, the second game did was that when your character from the first game was talked about, you could kind of, through dialogue options, say that... Um... No, it happened like this. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of the... Pro like, going back, talking about Mass Effect again, it was kind of the progenitor of Mass Effect's system of being able to carry over decisions to the next game between right. 1, 2, and 3. Right. So, some people weren't too happy with that with game and at least at launch it wasn't that good to begin with though i heard that recently a, a new patch came out that has been pretty well received and i i stopped playing it a while i managed to get a character up to um level 40 ish i i stopped a while ago before any of that was implemented i stopped before it was made free to play right so that's how that's how long i haven't played that game what disappointed me was all right, there is a... I feel like if I talk about this specific character, it's going to be somewhat spoilerish. Yeah, it's... 
But this character that was a big part of 1 and 2 does come back in the Old Republic, but he's just this mid-tier boss. Like, he's this... I think he's like a late 20s, early 30s dungeon boss. And that was really it. And I was like, that is so disappointing. Right, you know, the flair of, oh, look, here's this... Wait, do we get to fight this guy? Oh, God. And then... But, and then it just... Nah, it wasn't even that hard. Yeah. Well, Plus, you know, the whole nature of MMO stories with MMOs. Yeah, you, you're trying they kinda to... can't really advance. Yeah. And it's especially for something like Star Wars, where it's already in an established universe. So I feel yeah. it's a bit of an exercise in futility to. Or it could, yeah, you know, or it could be like Destiny, just have all of its story not in the game. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's. There's a bit of a running joke between me and uh, another uh, another multiversity uh, contributor, Vince. I, I rag on him for liking Destiny. <laughs> Even though I know as soon as I buy a PlayStation 4, I'm probably going to buy it as well. So, who am I to talk? But anyway, <laughs> not important. Well, I think uh, to close, though, that I think one thing we can agree on, even though I like two better than one, would you agree that if you're a Star Wars fan, or just someone whose love of Star Wars has been reignited by Presence of the Force Awakens, and you just can't wait for it to be in theaters, you need more Star Wars. I think that Knights of the Old Republic 1 is like one of the best ways to just get more Star Wars than what you have with the, uh, with the movies. Oh, def- definitely. And it's... I think one is it's only like ten bucks on Steam. You can, oh yeah, and it's often on sale for less. Yeah, and it's often yeah, and um. Or GOG, uh, if you yeah. use that, I know that they've they've added a lot of LucasArts stuff there. Yeah, and at its at the very least, it is worth it to get for HK47. Absolutely. Because he is awesome. The, he is one of the best. The best droid in the galaxy. In Star Wars. Like, to those who are reading um, uh, Kieran Gillen and Salvador LaRocca's um, Darth Vader comic, right. you know the, the homicidal robot, you know, Triple Zero and uh, BT-1? HK-47 is the character those robots are based on. He is the, the original comedically psychotic droids in Star Wars, and he is hilarious. And I think Gillen himself has admitted that it is a direct uh, inspiration, hasn't he? I, I wouldn't be surprised considering how much of a... Because he used to work in uh, games media. Yeah, he, I he, wouldn't be surprised if that if HK was, a, uh, was an inspiration for them. Right. So, the point is, try out Knights of the Old Republic if you haven't played it. If you like Star Wars at all, you'll love it. Do you agree, Ken? Definitely, absolutely. Awesome. And then you can uh, be like us and lament that we never got a proper conclusion to the trilogy. Uh, what could have been? All right, hey guys, um, I'm Zach, and I'm joined by Zach Wilkerson. I'm joined by Ken Godberson the uh, third. We're here to uh, talk about uh, one of our favorite Star Wars games. Uh, Star Wars, well, more of a uh, a se- series of games. It's uh, yes. Star Wars Rogue Squadron. Yes. 
And now, so, Ken, you were just telling me that you've only played the original Rogue Squadron game for Nintendo 64, correct? Uh, yeah, which, just looking on its page on GOG, it, uh, the original release date being 1998, it, and I just realized just how long ago that was. Very much. <laughs> yeah. And now I, on the other hand, have only played um, the two sequels for GameCube, Rogue Squadron... Rogue Leader, and then Rogue Squadron 3, Rebel Strike. So I'm coming in with a slightly different viewpoint than you. Yeah. Um, what I, I loved about it, it... Okay, I could be really wrong about this. I may just not be looking in the uh, right places. But after Rogue Squadron, there doesn't feel like any space combat games. Because it really ignited a love for, for space combat games in me. Yes. I just never could find any others. You know, and I, I think, well, like, I'm pretty sure Battlefront 2 had some space battle segments, but it wasn't the same. It, it wasn't quite as polished or as tight. It wasn't limited. Yes. And going on that, because I did play um, the uh, new Battlefront, mm-hmm. it has some, like, I played a segment in the X-Wing, and it it doesn't feel as smooth. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel, it feels very clunky. Right. Rogue Squadron, perhaps because it was just so focused on the ships, it didn't have to rely on things like ground battles. It was very polished. Mm-hmm. And you had an assortment. You had I remember you had the X Wing, which was the you know, the basic all around fighter. Uh you had the A Wing, which was for speed. Mm-hmm. Uh Y Wing was your bomber and really the worst ship. Uh Snow Speeders like, you really, you used it for the Battle of Hoth and maybe one or other two battles. Mm-hmm. But then, um, and I believe I believe it was Rogue Squadron that introduced uh, the V-Wing, which was never part of the, uh, you know, part of the canon, the movies. It was this, it was a very swift ship, and it had a bunch of cluster bombs, a bunch of cluster homing bombs, which mm-hmm. was a load of fun. Now, I'm, now you're making me want to check when the first appearance of the B-Wing was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this was the game that introduced it, but... Okay, Wiki, Wikipedia says they first they do first appear in Return of the Jedi. No, I'm talking about the V-Wing. V is oh, Victor. the V, okay, V. Yeah. Oh, yeah, v, I know about the V-Wing, but okay, uh, no, yeah. V-Wing. Now, the V-Wing, okay, yeah, see, now I'm not even sure if the V-Wing uh, showed up in subsequent games, because I am... Not very familiar with that one. No. Pulling it up to look at it. It was only available for one mission until ah uh, yes until you unlocked the until you were unlocked the ability to use any ship in any uh, level. Okay. But it was a load of fun. Okay. Yeah, that was see as far as I know, um, I don't think that one was in the sequels. Yeah. Now. Um, and I know the, the ship selection, like, really expanded in later games. Um, you know, they brought in, uh... Yeah, because they had, the re- they had, um, the whatchamacallits to rely on. Yeah, the prequels, and, you know, they brought in, yeah. you know, the Naboo Starfighter. I can't remember if it was only in the third one or in the second one as well. You could use the, the Jedi Starfighter. Um, Slave One was available as, like, an unlockable... Um, they kind of like went crazy with it, and it was really interesting. Um, there was when you would go select your—I don't know if this is how it was in the original—but when you would go select your 
your ship, you would be in a hangar and you would walk up to the ship you wanted to use and there would be an option to either get in the ship or just to hear a voiceover tell you like the history of the ship, which to me as like a kid just obsessed with Star Wars, being able to learn about the ships in that way was one of my favorite things. I, I spent an insane amount of time just running around that that hangar looking at all the vehicles. We didn't have the ability to walk around the hangar. It was just like if they was located in a hangar, mm-hmm. but it was just like a very much a character select. You would like hit left or right and it would move to a different ship, but it would still have that voiceover. Okay. Yeah, that I I really appreciated that. And that's probably one of like one of the early like things because this is, you know, still not not early in the internet days but you know not to the point now where there's a wiki for everything and you can just spend hours pouring over so much information like as a i think i was probably about 11 or 12 I, i think 12 when uh rogue squadron 2 came out and i you know that was just a great source of star wars lore for me yeah now let's say because now that buzz for star wars is um, climbing again. Um, and now we've got, uh, we have EA and DICE released just recently, um, Star Wars Battlefront. What would you like to see if they did another Rogue Squadron game? Um, well, I would want them to go back to something closer to the first or the second one. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, in the third, they introduced, um, some like on ground levels where you would play as like individual characters outside of their ships, which was not fun. The, I think the only mission where it was moderately interesting was in the battle of Hoth when you got to do the scene where Luke, uh, you know, grapples up to the ATAT and throws the, throws the grenade in. Yeah. Uh, You got to play that out, which after the first time, you know, kind of lost his luster. Yeah, that now that sounds like they were trying. I don't know, trying to do what Battlefront does, but again, yeah. it's like I was saying about the recent Battlefront. The vehicle sections in that do not feel polished. They don't feel interesting at all. They feel very clunky, very slow. Mm-hmm. Now, what I would love for from a new Rogue Squadron game would be to it have a lot of content not ripped out of it and to uh create a season pass that's five six the retail price over again <laughs> yes definitely because uh that's a load of shit mm-hmm. yeah you know i i would really like to see i think kind of like along the lines you were saying when you get away from just the vehicle combat and you the space battles and you're trying to incorporate a lot of things, you lose some of that focus. Yeah. That's if we got a, a new rogue squadron game that focused on the space mechanics and, you know, I would love to maybe see something set in between, um, episodes six and seven. Mm -hmm. That would be a really cool way to experience that story. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think the time is definitely ripe. I'm really kind of surprised how few Star Wars games we've had in the past few years. I think... Again, uh, they're, they're very... They felt like... I mean, the only real Star Wars game 
of the last couple of years before, you know, before the hype started going back up was the Old Republic, and Old Republic's not that good. Right, right. Yeah, and before that, there was the the Force Unleashed series. Which... Um, which was all right. It was kind of one, like infamous set in the... One was okay, two was a load of shit. I didn't play two, it, so it, I can't it, speak it to it. It wasn't good. It, it's about four hours long, and it still feels padded. <laughs> Well, I just I feel like these games came out of an era that I would almost call like the golden age of Star Wars games where we were getting so many games and they were all fair to fair to very good. And this the Rogue Squadron series, I think, sits at the top of the very good games. And it's just a shame that it's it's a franchise that's sat out for so long. It's definitely in my top two favorite franchises between it and uh, Knights of the Old Republic. Agreed. Yes. So, you know, I, I don't know if you saw anything about this a few months back. Um, a report came out that factor five, the developer at one time was working on a trilogy type remaster of the series for the Wii. No, um, I never heard of that. Yeah. And it, um, it went South when Lucas, arts closed same and it went went the way of 1313 yes yeah exactly and the rights exist with someone right now i i i'm not sure if it's ea it's i i don't know i i don't know where the rights to that isn't i don't know if ea i don't know if ea has full control over star wars because they they operate old republic out of bioware Mm-hmm. They got Battlefront through Dice. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't yeah, know if they, they just have a blanket rights to uh, Star Wars video games, or I, I don't. I, that's you know that's going into copyright law, and I don't know anything about that kind of shit. So yeah, I don't either. But you know, it, it pains me that they're and they actually finished the the trilogy remaster. Or it was ready to go. Yeah. Um, it just never made it out the door. Because I think what it also is, because the video, well, the AAA game industry is so freaking myopic that they just assume that there's no that there's no market for you know space combat games, mm-hmm. which is obviously ridiculous. Like anything that isn't you know Call of Duty. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth their time, and it's well, yeah. And I feel like that was at one time like one of the big driving forces in the Star Wars games. Like I've I've never played the um, the X Wing or Tie Fighter series for PC. You know, so many people. You know, I I played uh, Tie Fighter. So many people swear on that game, and I'm like, this is crap. This is a crappy game. <laughs> See, I've I am I've never even really looked into them, so I I don't really know much about them other than they seem compared to from what I understand compared to Rogue Squadron, they seem much more sim oriented, yeah. like it's... much more like into heavy flight mechanics. And I may be totally off on that, but that's always kind of in my mind been the distinction. Whereas Rogue Squadron is more arcadey, you know? Yeah. A bit more forgiving, but also still very... Um, well, not exactly like the Star yeah, Wars arcade yeah. game. 
But yeah, not yeah. I guess maybe forgiving isn't the right word, but more. Which was uh, a load of fun until you had to fight technical. Darth Vader. Yes. Yeah, the uh, the Star Wars uh, spaceship game, arcade game, but was really kind of a rail shooter, mm-hmm. which was a load of fun until you had to fight Darth Vader. So, do you have any uh, like a particular mission from the game that stands out as one of your favorites? Uh, that final, uh, that final mission where you got to play as the uh, where you got to use the V wings against the uh, the World Devastators. They were called basically these giant mobile weapon platforms of death floating over. Uh, I don't remember the name of the planet, but it was an ocean world. Okay. Yeah, with a couple of like islands, like giant islands as like cover and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun. That's funny. Rogue Squadron Two had a had a world that was kind of um, oceanic, lots of islands scattered over. I think it was. I, I was looking at it earlier. I think it was Kola, yeah. and I really I, I remember that episode fondly. There was a part where you got to fly the y-wing and bomb the crap out of stuff which i really like yeah. but i think the one that stands out most for me there's a there's a mission in rogue squadron 2 um called the let's see let me look it up really quick we were so prepared for this podcast i i had it on the tip of my tongue <laughs> earlier the ice and ice and quarter that's what it was the ice and quarter nice. um and it takes place right after uh the they escape hoth and the the level itself wasn't anything like groundbreaking like the things you had to do but the art direction for it was fantastic there's this like weird um ghostly nebula in the background, and it, it looked kind of like oh! anything that you see in the Star Wars movies. Wait a minute. Okay, wait. I have to change my mind. I actually did play two, because I remember that level. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, that was one of the things I liked most about that game, I think. It also is um, getting to see these other places in the Star Wars universe that you didn't see in the movies. Yeah. You know, alongside the places that you got in the movies yeah. it was re- it was a really cool um you know change of pace to go from a battle that was really recognizable to something that you had never seen before yeah yeah okay so i guess we're gonna uh we're gonna wrap up here um do you have any final words on the series i want i just hope it comes back i do hope yeah somebody, that's uh, i EA or wherever is hearing this and bring it back, but don't like do it right. Like mm-hmm. I say, like it's obviously not like that's the thing is like I don't they they're gonna want to dismiss it because it won't be a big money maker. Well, don't go crazy on your budget. Know who you're marketing to, mm-hmm. and you'll make money. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, now's the time. It, I mean, yeah. I guess the only thing I can think of is if someone was afraid that it would cannibalize sales of Battlefront. Um, but, I don't think so. Like, yeah. I, I don't necessarily think so because they're two very different. I think if they just went, did away, like didn't even bother to put like the space, co- the, uh, the air combat in uh, the new Battlefront. If they just didn't mm-hmm. bother with that polished the uh groundwork 
Mm -hmm. It just made it more of a first-person shooter, yeah, which is, I think, what the draw is for most people. And make it a bit more unique, because most of the criticism I hear about with Battle, the new Battlefront is that when you're not reliving like some of those famous moments of Star Wars, it feels very monotonous, very Call of Duty-ish. Mm -hmm. But not, not that there's anything wrong with Call of Duty, but it's just stop trying to be Call of Duty. Right. Okay, so I think we're going to uh, finish up here. So uh, thank you for listening to us. Um, yes. Look forward to whichever piece comes next. <laughs> ah, Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars. Give me the Star Wars. Don't let them in. Thank you so much, folks, for listening to another installment of Force Ghost Coast to Coast. We're having so much fun doing this podcast, and I really hope you guys are enjoying it. Please continue to call our hotline, 973-913-4627. Again, that's 973-913-4627. We'd love to hear your thoughts about Star Wars, especially about your interaction with the games and toys that we all grew up playing with. Uh, you can also tweet at the show at forceghostc2c. You can email us forceghostc2c at gmail.com. Please continue to check out multiversitycomics.com for all your comics needs. We're going to end tonight's show not with a voicemail, but with a monologue from our own Alice W. Castle. Um, Alice wanted us to talk about Luke Skywalker. And I was struggling to find a place to put this conversation because there isn't a natural fit. But then I realized that Luke is our proxy through the Star Wars universe, and we are seeing the world through Luke's eyes. And that's exactly how we play with toys or play video games. We're seeing through the eyes of those toys, those characters. We're allowing ourselves to be a part of that world, and that's what Luke is for all of us. So, just a second, we're going to hear Alice talk about Luke. But until next time, may the Force be with you. Hi, my name is Alice W. Castle, and I'm going to be talking about my absolute all-time favourite Star Wars character in Luke Skywalker, which I know is kind of a cop-out. He's essentially the de facto main character for the majority of the film series. Even the prequel trilogies are about his dad and his family. They're still kind of about him and informing where he came from, but I don't know, the... This took me a while to try and figure out why exactly Luke is my favourite character and it didn't really click with me until I was recording the new novels and new comics uh, talk with Jess and Matt and Jess mentioned something about how quintessentially kind of unique the experience of Luke being a kind of small town, essentially kind of small town farm kid who then goes on to save the world. And 
if you know anything about me, you know that my favourite comic book character is Superman. So the fact that they're kind of very similar, they're essentially the same character, let's be real. That's kind of got me thinking about how, you know, I'm kind of from a small town in the middle of Scotland that unless you actually live here, you probably haven't heard of. And so there's a very nice parallel there that I think I latched onto when I was younger of seeing Luke kind of struggling in Tatooine with being stuck on essentially a farm for all his life of wanting to go out and make a difference and want to do something and kind of explore and see the rest of the galaxy but stuck on this kind of dust bowl backwater planet that really connected with me and then seeing his journey through the three films of going from this really naive kind of idealistic kid who's kind of whining a little bit bratty in the new hope to kind of more revered and a bit more confident but still really has a lot of heart and Empire Strikes Back to Return of the Jedi which I think is as much as I kind of there are parts of Return of the Jedi that I really don't like but the thing that really holds that film together for me is seeing the culmination of Luke's storyline and this is something I'm going to get into a little bit more when I talk about the Dawn of the Jedi unless I've already talked about that I don't know the kind of order of these that are coming out but seeing Luke become the Jedi he was kind of always meant to be having that kind of line of I'm a father I'm a Jedi like my father okay I'm going to retake that edit that Brian edit that seeing Luke become the Jedi that he was kind of always destined to be, you know, that kind of line of, I'm a Jedi like my father before me, kind of standing up to the Emperor. And what's interesting to me is that he's not a Jedi like we saw in the prequel trilogy. The Jedi we saw there were devoted to the light. They were light with the absence of dark. They were compassion without love. They were basically kind of neutered in their connection to the Force because they devote themselves to one side. Whereas Luke is a lot more balanced. I mean, you look at Return of the Jedi, what's the first thing Luke does when he shows up? He force chokes a Gamorrean guard. And the only other person we'd seen up to that point doing a force choke is Darth Vader. And he's wearing all black and he's got the hooded robe and he's showing up and he's Jedi mind tripping, uh, tricking Bear Fortuna and he's forcing his way into Jabba's palace to save his friends. So he kind of becomes not like an anti-hero but he has this element of the darkness in him and he's he is balanced. You know the prequel trilogies go on to like talk a lot about the chosen one and bringing balance to the force and the Jedi of the prequel trilogy were convinced that balance was devotion to the light with no darkness which is not how light works there will always inherently be darkness with light the balance comes with taking the light and taking the dark as equals and i think there's a great kind of metaphor for life in luke skywalker's journey where you have to kind of accept that there is a darkness in all of us but there's also a goodness in all of us and you have to kind of take the two of them and create a balance and seeing Luke's journey through there and 
hopefully seeing his journey in The Force Awakens, I think he's the key to the entire saga of watching someone with great power actually harness that power for not just good, but for the betterment of the galaxy.